Hey, everybody. My name is Jeremy. I'm the pastor here, and um, wanted to take a moment to draw your attention to one thing before we get going. Um, in the very back, there are these clipboards and pieces of paper, and it says on the top, Advent, a celebration and a waiting. Um, we recognize that for many of you um, that tracking along with the flow of the service every day is difficult enough for the adults in the room, let alone for the kids, young and old, in the room as well. So uh, if you're an adult and you would like some help tracking through the service, and especially this was designed for kind of that middle school transition time when they're in the service uh, but are potentially not able to sort of conceptualize and wrangle with every big theme, this helps to break some of those things down and give attention to the songs, to the lyrics, to the sermon, and particular points going on. Uh, so I commend that to you. Those are in the back and will be every week. And these four uh, next four weeks are sort of themed around the season of Advent. So you may have picked up even by, you know what's really fun is how many Christmas songs are in a minor key. You, you may have noticed, you may have like come into church this morning thinking about, all right, like the Christmas lights are up and the tree is up and it may have been up for a month already, but it's finally here. It's time to celebrate with all of my church family and we're going to dive in and we're going to have like a month long birthday celebration for Jesus. And uh, I mean, everybody else has a birthday month, so why shouldn't Jesus? A lot of what you may have come in and experienced so far is some tension. Hopefully that is mirroring the fact and the reality that each of us out there, as we're walking in, are experiencing all kinds of tension, all kinds of longing, all kinds of unfulfilled, unmet need. The goal of the Advent season leading up to Christmas is to locate that need as a reality of the Christian life. That does not mean that you're doing something wrong. In fact, that means that you are fighting the fight of faith. Because when I ask you to use the word hope in a sentence, normally we use the word hope like, I hope the Titans win the Super Bowl, which probably isn't going to happen. Uh, I hope mom makes mac and cheese for Thanksgiving. I hope the U.S. men's national team wins the World Cup. Like, we, we right? We use those things Tuesday, next game. Uh, what we don't normally say is, man, I hope Christmas comes soon. Or I hope dad comes home from work today. Unless your father is in a, you know, a precariously uh, type of business. But normally we use hope as a way of to say there's a contingency. There's a maybe or a maybe not. I hope that this will happen, and it might, and it might not. The Bible uses the word hope differently, though. And so I'm not sure if you noticed, but there's this candle up here that was just lit. This is the one of four of these candles that are going to get lit every week sort of leading up to Advent. By the way, you can also do this uh, for your own self, in your family, among your roommates, or whoever, uh, in that box back there, you can get a kit and do the same thing and reflect on these four key themes, these sort of four virtues of what the Christian life is and what Advent ushers us into of hope, peace, 
joy, and love. So in thinking about this word hope, like I hope that sound in the ceiling will stop. Um, The Bible uses that word differently. The Bible uses the word hope to describe a surety of something that will happen in the future. And it has a lot more to do with like an I can't wait instead of a fingers crossed kind of expectancy. And so in the next four weeks, we're going to be walking this walk of hope. And hope recognizes two things. This is a lot more like, uh, not like four weeks of endless celebration, but a lot more like the month right before you give birth. Mom's in the room, holler. Right? That, how much fun is that month prior to giving birth? I heard a lot of mmms. I don't, know the, I don't know the answer to that question. I am trusting my wife and others in the room who have walked that road uh, that I have not walked. There is both that joyful sense of anticipation, like I can't wait to hold this little child in my hands. At the very same time, there is literal groaning that your body is going through of like, get this thing out. <laughs> and so it is that in this pregnancy that we're living into, waiting for Jesus, we're living into the reality that for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, there was a waiting for this coming Messiah. And we are also locating ourselves as a people who are also living in a tension and in a waiting. We are living between the first and the second advents. The first and the second, that word advent just means coming or arrival. The first and second arrivals of Jesus. We are waiting for him to come back and make this whole thing right. And yet we know that it is not what it will be, but redemption has begun. We are also not what we were. Incredible. Okay. In addition, uh, we're going to be using Isaiah to kind of help us walk through as another one uh, who has gone before us, who has lived in this same tension. He actually used that, uses that word hope a number of times throughout this book. You have to equate hope and waiting, and you're going to see both of those in this quote from Isaiah 8. Isaiah 8 says, I will wait for the Lord. You can interchange wait and hope. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him, or I will wait for him. Because you can't have hoping without waiting. There's nothing to hope for if there's not a gap there. But there is this expectancy that he will not hide his face forever. And in the same way as we're lighting these candles and walking towards and remembering all of the people that anticipated Jesus' first coming, we are also reconciling all of the things in our own lives that are not like we want them to be. And we're bringing those things in every week and putting those before Jesus' feet and saying, I trust you that this is as the best that I can do and no more. And I'm going to trust you for my own heart to draw me into this reality. I'm going to trust you with my family to draw us into this reality. I'm going to trust you with my city and this world that everything is not what it will be. But he is also slowly invading all things, even our lives. So we are going to uh, jump in at sort of the very, it's the beginning of Isaiah, 
but it ends a section that's kind of a summary of this whole book. From Isaiah 1-1 till 2-5 is sort of this microcosm of this both bad news and good news of the gospel that Isaiah is preaching. And so all of Isaiah 1 is all of the judgment, all of the turn back, turn back, you've turned away, turn back. And then now we crest into Isaiah 2, and there's this hopeful tone and this imagery of mountains and beauty and glory that we're going to play on and try to anticipate what the Lord is trying to tell us in the same way that he was trying to tell his Old Testament kingdom in the days of David and following. So I am going to ask somebody who I forgot. It's Emily Bristow. That's it. Great. Thank you. Uh, to come on up and read our passage. There's only one wacky name you have to handle. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Thanks, Emily. <clears throat> So Isaiah is living in this tension as one who is kind of just coming on the heels of the glories of the kingdom that David established. But almost as soon as David establishes this Old Testament kingdom of Israel, it begins to fade and falter. And so on the heels of that, they're, they're turning away from Yahweh, from the God of God, from the Lord of Lords, and they're turning to all of these false gods, all of the gods of the people around them, beginning to trust more in them than they were in the one who established them and established their kingdom and established their Lord. And so Isaiah is calling them back to himself and acting a lot less when we tend to think of prophecy, we tend to think of like, you know, rubbing, rubbing the, the magic eight ball and trying to find out the future. There is a component of that because everything we just read is, is forward-looking. It is saying there is something in the future that is a reality that we will experience. But a lot more than that, this is Isaiah and many of the other prophets are acting a lot more like God's lawyers than they are God's fortune tellers. They are bringing an indictment. They are bringing charges against his people and saying these are all of the things that you have done against the Lord. But they're also harbingers of hope to say, come back. Come back. Yes, God's judgment is real. Yes, you are held accountable for all that you have done and not done. Come back to him. His hands are open. His grace is for you, and it's enough. And that same call is to all of us today and everything that we're doing as we walk through the next four weeks of Advent. So we're going to do this uh, in this way. The tale of two mountains. Point one, the mountain of me. Point two, 
the mountain of the Lord. There, there's something about mountains that humans seem to have always had an infatuation with. Everything from that crazy free solo guy with no ropes uh, to the 4,000 people who have summited Everest to everyone in the past year who's driven through the Smokies or Blue Ridge Parkway to everybody in here who's got any North Face or Patagonia gear on, right? There's something about the mountains uh, that are this transcendent, majestic glory that we, like, we want to be a part of. We want to be there. That is not only true of us and our culture. That is true of cultures across uh, the globe. We hiked Klingman's Dome, which is the, the highest point in Tennessee a few years ago. And it was a day when there was a storm that was kind of brewing around us. And we're in this massively dense fog. I mean, so much so that you, I mean, you're literally on the side of a mountain. Have you, anybody been to Klingman's Dome? Like you're on the side of a mountain and you're trying not to fall off. And there's this super dense fog that feels almost otherworldly. Um, and every time that dense fog would break, we would see 6,500 feet down to our doom. Then this thunderstorm rolls in and pushes us. We couldn't even finish the hike, but it feels like we were in the thundercloud. Glory, majesty, terror are some of the things that we experience when we're on those mountaintops. In, in a very similar way, the mountains in the ancient Near East were where you went to worship pagan gods. They were, because they held this kind of transcendent glory, it would make sense that, yeah, that's the place where gods would meet us. That's the place where we could sort of connect in these mystical, mysterious ways. So like, you know, this may be a familiar verse that you may not have looked at in this particular way, but in Psalm 121, when the psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? What he's asking is, I'm looking at all of these pagan hills and I'm looking at all the other gods. I'm looking at Baal, and I'm looking at Ashtaroth, and I'm looking at all these other gods that all these people around me worship. And I'm saying, no, no, no. I'm, lift, I'm lifting my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made all this stuff. He made every hill. The big ones and the small ones and everything in between. And so verse 2, when this imagery of the mountain comes into, uh, into view, which is a similar theme throughout all of Scripture. It shall come to pass that the mountain of the Lord will be the highest mountain, and the nations shall flow to it. And so it's, it's reflecting on this imagery of there are all these lesser mountains around us. There are all of these other mountains that beckon us, climb to my top, ascend this hill, I will bring you everything that you want. And so we long and we run up the mountain of money. We, we run up the mountain of image. We run up the mountain of achievement. And time after time after time, we get to the top of that mountain and we're like, this is it? You ever done a hike and you got to the top of the ridge and you're like, I put all this work in for this? And all these mountains beckon us. And we're constantly walking our way, trudging our way up those things. And we're asking them, verse 3, teach us your ways. Teach us your ways, O money. Teach us your ways, O popularity. Teach us your ways, O North Face. 
and yet they always come up lacking. Romans 1, 22 and 23 describes this kind of dynamic where it says, claiming to be wise, they, speaking of us, became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And this is not just sort of them out there. This is us in here. This is me in here. My heart constantly being pulled. Oh, please, satisfy, satisfy, satisfy. And I continue to need. I continue to lack. I continue to struggle with staying on task. Um, so look at verse 4. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. All of the imagery here is forward pointing, and if it's like in the same way that anytime the Bible says don't do something, it's because the assumption is you're doing that thing. And so in the similar way that if, if this future is this sort of utopian hope of unity and glory and joy, it means that our lives right now are not utopian, glory, unity, and joy-filled. The, the description here is a lot more like just a few verses later in Romans 1. If we're all worshiping at different mountains, if we're all ultimately worshiping the mountain of ourselves, and constantly trying to only be, ultimately, in my heart, I'm about me. Then if that's true of everybody else in this community, if that's true of everybody else in this city, then how unified is that group going to be? It will be disunified. Because as we each worship our own God, our own thing, chase our own good life, all of those paths are going to diverge. And maybe, you know, we'll throw a bone and do some charity every now and again and serve at the soup kitchen or whatever, but the thrust of our life is going to be about me. Unless something changes. And it ain't gonna be me. Romans 1, 29 through 31. This is what happens when we each worship at anything other than the mountain of the Lord. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And the list could go on. Because we look at our world, it looks a lot more like that than it does this glorious future that Isaiah 2 is describing. We've got wars in Ukraine. We've got wars and conflict in the Middle East still. We've got tribal wars in India and Africa. We've got Democrat versus Republican. We've got mother versus daughter. We've got brother versus brother, friend versus friend, husband versus wife. We, we experience a different reality in our everyday life than is described here. And if Miss America is right and everybody really just wants world peace, but nobody can figure out how to get it. Like, where is the answer? We need a sure hope. Not a, I hope I can make it through another holiday season with my family. 
That's contingent. That's contingent on either me or them. I need a hope that is sure, that will not change, that will not disappoint, that is secure, that does not depend on me and does not depend on anybody else around me. So let's leave the mountain of me and walk towards the mountain of the Lord. There's a number of images that the New Testament borrows out of, across Isaiah, but even out of this passage. But one particularly that Jesus borrows as I thought about what this means for us today. Jesus is talking to this outcast woman. And she's sitting at a well, and he starts striking up a conversation with her. And, you know, along the course of their conversation reveals that she had had five husbands, that she was still sort of in this longing, this searching. She had gone up many of these mountains looking for hope, looking for security, looking for joy, and it just kept disappointing and had left her wrecked, sitting at this well, ostracized from her community in the middle of the day. And they, they get into a theological debate about which mountain God should be worshipped on. And this is because of some of the, the past of her as a Samaritan and what they believed versus what Jews believed. But it's a lot easier to get into a theological debate than it is to actually talk about your heart. And yet Jesus goes right for her heart, even through her questioning. And this is what he says to her. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Listen to this. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What is a hope that I can have that is not contingent on me or anybody else and will bring me to a future that I can trust is going to happen? Here it is. We are looking and wandering up these various mountains, and Jesus says, there is only one mountain, and you can't get there on your own. Because those who will worship the Father will worship him not by doing their good works on the mountaintop in Jerusalem, not by doing their good works on any of these other mountaintops, but only by ascending the hill of the Lord. And how do you get there? Well, you get there in spirit and you get there in truth. What does that mean? It means there's an objective reality that we are living in that can be trusted. There's an objective reality biblical revelation that can be trusted. There's a, a, a relatable and understandable tradition that can be communicated to us about the good news and the bad news of the grace of Jesus. But there is also something that is subjective. We're worshiping in spirit as well. There's something subjective about Christianity. There's something subjective about our relationship with the Lord. Like the spirit communicating to us internally that we are actually loved by God. That's something we can't do for ourselves. That's not contingent on me. That's not contingent on you telling me how much Jesus loves me or me being able to preach a good enough sermon. That is contingent only on the Spirit invading any heart in this room and communicating that kind of love. Worshiping in spirit and worshiping in truth is something we cannot do on our own. 
But those comforting words at the very end, that the Father is seeking such people. Because if my entire life is going to be one ascent to another, from one hill to another, longing after longing after longing unfulfilled, I have to have someone come intersect my path. I have to have someone, as I'm walking up that hill of approval again, to go, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, not today. I approve of you no matter what. As I I look up that mountain of image or success to say, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh, well done, good and faithful servant is already over you, Jesus says. And only one who can intersect our lives and intersect our reality is worthy of our worship because anything else is just made in our image. Like if you've ever been hiking in the mountains, uh, you know it's easy to lose your cell phone service. And like the Apple Maps, you'll pull it up and then all of a sudden, you know, you're trying to drive to find some cool you know, back roads spot somewhere, and then your Apple Maps just looks completely blank. Right? That's our heart, naturally, without Jesus. And we're just this blank slate, wandering around, a little blue dot with nothing else around it, just doing our best to try to make it through this world. And Jesus comes and he intersects that reality. You can thank Dave Burden for this image I'm about to give you. Jesus is our Sherpa. You're welcome. (laughs) Uh, In the sense that, so, okay, here's another image. We were uh, were hiking different time in North Carolina. Uh, We kind of come over this ridge, came back down, and there was this clearing, this like strange clearing with all of these pine trees that were about five feet apart. It was this very otherworldly experience. And then we we look through those pine trees and we see something moving at the, the very edge of that, maybe 500 yards away. And as we get closer and closer to it, the fuzzy images begin to take shape. And they're llamas. <laughs> not what you're expecting. It's not what we were expecting either. And there's this pack of llamas that are in this clearing. And there's nobody with them. And we're like, what is happening? Like, what alternate universe did I just stumble into that the llamas are now just like free-range llamas? And we get closer and we start to, you know, I mean, they're sort of cute and weird looking, so we kind of wanted to pet them. And we get closer and this guy kind of comes out of this, this thicket and he's carrying some firewood. And we're like, what is happening? Like, we're in the middle of nowhere and here's 12 llamas and a guy. And, uh, and he goes, oh, I'm actually a guide. And I work for this camp, and we pack in on all these llamas in everything that these kids, these camp, camp kids are going to need for a week to survive in these woods. Now, if he had up and le- they were like off gathering firewood and looking at the water features and whatever nearby. If he had left, they would have been completely lost. If he had packed up the alpacas and gone straight back up the hill from whence he came, they would have had no hope. They would have been like the blue dot, just kind of wandering around. In the same way, we need someone to trod the path to the Lord ahead of us. We need someone to find our way because naturally we're going to be so lost. But Jesus did two things. 
that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the incarnation of Jesus, the, the coming of Jesus in real flesh. Why did he have to come in real human flesh? Well, because we needed someone to trod the path to the mountain of the Lord, up to its top. And we recognize that we can't do that. We can't get through even a day. We, we, it's like the, the wipeout, remember that old game show? Where like, get up the thing, and then the tarp, you know, with all the grease on it, just pulls it out from under us, and we fall back down. We needed someone to trod that path ahead of us. And Jesus says, you will worship in spirit and in truth, and I am he that you will worship. And so he lives this perfect life so that we can walk in his paths after him, trotting up this hill of the Lord. Perfect, every bit of his life. What would that have been like? To live 33 years perfectly. We can't live 33 seconds. But not only does he do that, he also then every war implement of God that is turned against us. Notice this image. He beats their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Images of war. God is a faithful father, but he is also a righteous judge. There is judgment for sin, which Isaiah 1 and the beginning of Isaiah 2 make very clear. There, there should be a separation between anything unholy and God because God in his glory can only be around glorious things. But the reality of Jesus not only came to live this perfect life, but to shed his own blood with all of the anger and the sword and the spear and the war implements of God being turned towards him so that for us, they can be beaten into plowshares and pruning hooks. For us in Christ, safe under his shelter of a perfect life and a perfect death and a glorious resurrection, we are now safe so that the sword and the spear of God's anger and wrath is not torn, turned towards us, but instead these are instruments of cultivation. Why would he use an image of cultivation? Because he is cultivating an entirely new world. And a pruning hook is now what a, a spear used to be. And so he prunes as a good father, disciplines, loves, and prunes us in all of the variety of ways that he may be afflicting you right now. That you may feel like this world is not what I want it to be. My life is not what I want it to be for all the disappointments, for all the sin and temptation inside your own heart, for all of the dysfunction that exists around you, every bit of that God uses as a pruning hook to prune you that you would grow and bear more fruit. That same image that he uses later in John. So with every one of these four prophecies, there's going to be a tension between this already and this not yet that already Jesus has come. So the hope for a new world where everyone only worships God is sure. It is coming. It is real. And it has begun. It's, it's begun in this room. This room is a reality pointing to the fact that God is on the move. 
that he's working, that he's doing things, that your life looks different than it did five years ago. But the opposite is also true because he has come, but he has not come again. And so the hope of this new world that Isaiah 2 talks about is not our present reality. There is still fighting, there's still war, still selfishness, still bitterness, and that's just in my own heart. But God is building a new temple on a new holy mountain. A temple that the world can say and look at and point to and say, God lives there. And what is that imagery pulled out of Ephesians that God uses for that new temple? What does he say? That I'm building living stones. It's in the place. It's a people. He's saying, I am building my church. And that is the glory of the Lord on earth. That is the foretaste. The closest thing we can get to the reality of what will be is found here and now in the church. Even at Midtown Creek Walk. So to beat swords into plowshares, there's this giant bronze sculpture outside the UN headquarters in New York City. You ever been there and seen it? And it's this, it's this giant man and sort of this sword that has a curve to it. And he's got his, his fist raised with a hammer in it. And he's beating that sword into a plowshare. It was a gift in 1959 from the Soviet Union to the UN. If that doesn't communicate the already and not yet, I don't know what does. Like the reality of this is, <laughs> this is the intended hope of world peace, of perfect unity, nation to nation. While at the same time, the reality even of the giver of that gift in this present day does not reflect that reality. So as we close, if the reality, the closest reality of peace and hope that exists in this world is found in the church, how might, with whom could you beat a sword into a plowshare today? I think a couple different ways you could apply that. Within the church, who is someone that you could pursue unity with in this body that you might not naturally be buddies with. Like if there is a foretaste of a forever nation-to-nation -nation unity that's coming, how could our church not only look like similar people coming together with similar interests, but how could it begin to look more and more, have the shape of our community, have the shape of the new heavens and the new earth where all tribes, tongues, and nations at least as adequately represented out in this section of the community, beginning to dwell and live and work and pray and worship together. And to take that one step further, who in your life right now, and you don't have to look very far, I don't think. I mean, how could your husband, your, your wife, your father, your mom, your uh, child, your co-worker, your roommate, because Jesus has made peace with you, who might he be calling you even right now to beat that place where you might feel the most justifiable anger to like thrust that sword right at him? 
And how might he call you instead to pull that future reality into the now? That if that's what forever is going to be like, then I can trust him that I can have that hope and stand on that sure hope today. And it may not turn out like I want it to. I may try to extend peace and it may get thrown back in my face. But even then, my hope is not in you. My hope is not in me. My hope is in the Lord and then in the new heavens and the new earth that is to come. The hope is not in perfect peace now. But the hope is this, that whatever is happening, the Lord is cultivating a garden in your life. He is using those tools of war now turned towards you as tools of grace. And more and more forming you and forming this community and this world into something that on its own, it would not look like. Let's pray. So Father, we're asking you to do something among us that we can't do for ourselves. We're asking you to meet us in all of our lack, uh, in all of our longing, in all of our sadness, in all of the places where we are not experiencing hope. And we're asking that you would intersect your reality uh, with ours. That you would intersect all the places that we long to have different. All the ways in and of ourselves we long to be different. And intersect the reality that you have come. That our lives can look different because of the work of the Spirit inside our hearts. And the offering of the gospel that is always free and open for any to come to you. And so I pray that many in this room would be called to you even for the first time. And that you would beckon, whether for the first time or the 51st time, beckon us back to you again. That our hearts could find more satisfaction in you than they can in anything else in this world. Thank you, Jesus, for the peace that you've offered to us. Lord, help us to extend that to others in our lives. We pray in Christ.